Hey, Rivertree family, I'm, as Stephen said, I'm Jay, one of the pastors here at Rivertree. Specifically, I am the mission's pastor, but I always get great joy in getting to preach. And so I just want to say thank you so much for being here with us. I know it's Labor Day weekend, um, and I, there's a lot of things you could be doing, but you chose to be here. And so we're really grateful and thankful that you're here this Sunday morning. And we're going to be continuing in Matthew today. We've been in Matthew for a while now. We've still got a ways to go, but it's, it's a joy to kind of continue in this book as we continue to get to look at the way our Savior lived his life each and every day. And as we continue in Matthew 17, I do want to look back just a minute at what Ross talked about last week. So Ross gave this story or was telling us about how Jesus basically tells his disciples, I'm going to die. Right? And Peter's like, no, 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 no way. This isn't going to happen. And he gave this kind of funny, great example of imagine you're a high school football team and Patrick Mahomes showed up, right? And you're like, well, obviously we're going to kill everyone forever in high school football, right? The greatest team ever. And then Patrick Mahomes comes in the huddle and he's like, hey, by the way, guys, I've come to lose. You would be distraught at this idea. Like, how could we ever lose? We have Patrick Mahomes. And that's kind of what Jesus did, right? You're like, we've got the savior of the world. How could we ever lose? And Jesus is like, actually, guys, I'm gonna die. And Peter, again, kind of misunderstands what's being talked about. And it's really something he should have understood, right? He should have known that Jesus was always going to do this, that the plan from the very beginning has been for Jesus to die, not to kind of set up this earthly kingdom here on earth. And Peter yet again misses it. But after that, we're gonna move into the passage today. And so starting in Matthew 17, I'm gonna read verse one. And it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to James, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we get uh, insight into your son, that we get to see his life lived out. We get to see his ministry and see how he lived, Father God, and how he ministered to others. And I just pray, Lord, that we, as we dive into your word today, that we walk away um, just blown away by how incredible of a savior that we get to serve. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So it kind of starts here in verse one. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother, John. And so they're gonna go up to this mountain and on top of it. Now it says about, or it says six days here. If you're like, there's this thing called textual like variance, which means like there's this other story in Luke where it actually says about eight days. And so you may be one of those, see the Bible, it contradicts itself. See, it says six days here and about eight days there. Well, 
we use that same terminology, right? We call five days about a week. We say 10 days. We say 11 or 12 days. We don't really know. But what we do know here is that Matthew's given us a very specific number. He's saying it's six days versus about eight. So the number is six. So about six days after this event happened where Jesus said, I've come to die, we now get to see this story and what happens. And starting in verse two, it says, he was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. Recently, my daughter, so I have an eight-year-old daughter, and she is playing soccer. And over the last few years, she's played rec soccer only. But a couple years ago, or this year, she was really good at rec soccer, so we decided to make the jump to club soccer. And Raleigh is a, she's good. And just like you put them in club, and you're like, how good is she going to be? I don't know. And she gets in there, and she's doing a wonderful job. And Raleigh, as she plays, I'm always like, Raleigh, do you want to, where do you want to play do you want to play defense? Do you want to score goals? And her coach is like, she, she's a great defender. I'd love to play her back there. And I'm like, Raleigh, do you want to score goals? She's like, no, I just want to play defense. That's all I want to do. And I'm like, okay, if that's what you want to do, let's talk about how you play defense. So in soccer, I know we talk about how you can't, people are like, oh, it's not as tough as football. And that is true. But you do still have contact with people. Like you still do push on people and things like that. And one of the things in soccer, when you push, if you just kind of push with your shoulder, you can basically do whatever you want to do. You just can't like push them with your arms. And so as she's kind of moved up to club soccer, we've been out in the yard working on pushing on each other, okay? So I'll get her out there and I'll kind of push on her and I'm like, this is how you do it. And she's like pushing back and she doesn't fully understand. She doesn't get her and she's get it. And she's also this like really sweet kid. She's like, daddy, I can't push on people. I'm like, baby, you have to push on people. This is the job. You have to push. She's like, I don't know. And so we've been working on it. And I've seen her try it a little bit and practice sometimes. But the other day, they had their first game. And I told you, Raleigh loves to play defense because more than she likes to score, she hates being scored on. And so she's like, I'll do anything to keep people from scoring. And so there's this girl, and she's running at her, and Raleigh's back there playing defense. And she, she kicks the ball around Raleigh. And we've talked about, Raleigh, if they ever get it around you and you know that girl is faster than you, then you just got to jump in front of them and push them. She's like, Daddy, I, I don't know if I can do that. I'm like, you have to, Raleigh. So girl kicks the ball around her. As she's doing that, Raleigh's kind of like doing this number. And all of a sudden, she realizes what she has to do. And she turns around and she drops her shoulder and just wham, nails this girl. And this girl falls to the ground. Raleigh sees the ball, she kicks it away, and I am so happy. <laughs> like, this is the moment. But the thing about it was, is Raleigh, as she does it, she knows where her mother and I are sitting. She turns around and she looks at us and just has this huge grin on her face. Like, Daddy, did you see that? I did it. I did it. And we were so happy. And all the parents, is, you know, it wasn't a super competitive game. Everybody's happy to be there. All parents, both teams are just laughing at her, just how happy and joyous she was in this moment. And that's kind of what we see happening here with Jesus times about a billion. But ultimately, you kind of see this glow on his face, this shining that's taking place. But it goes even further than that. It says his clothes became as white as the light. So one of the joys of being a pastor is that you get to officiate weddings. And there's this moment, you know, where everybody kind of comes in. So bridesmaids, all the people, all these things. And then the doors will shut behind them, right? So you'll be standing up here until you're the pastor. You get to witness this just incredible moment as the doors shut. And everybody's like, is she coming? When she's coming? When she, where, where is she? Where is she? And the, the groom is like, is she even going to come? Like, what's going to happen here? 
right? And then all of a sudden, the doors open. And when they open, in steps the bride. And as the pastor, you have like front row view. She's wearing the most expensive dress she's ever worn. Her hair's done, her makeup's done. She's beautiful. But it's not just that that's beautiful. She knows, and she's filled with this overwhelming joy because she is going to give herself to the man that she loves more than anything in the world. And you get to experience that. You get to see it, and she glows and radiates. It's an incredible, incredible moment. As those of us that are there, we get to experience. And as I said, Jesus goes beyond that, right? It's much more than that, but they're watching. And as they're watching, the scene gets even more incredible. It says, suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them. Now, there's all these questions about why is it Moses and Elijah, why them? Why not just some random Joe from the Old Testament? Here's old Joe the Israelite just up here with Jesus. Why Moses and Elijah? Now, some people will say, commentators will talk about this idea that Moses is kind of the representation of the law because he has the law and Elijah was a prophet, so he's a representation of the prophets. And Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, so this is why it's Moses and Elijah. And that might be true, but we don't have a clear example of that in the text. I think part of it is, is these are just two guys that everyone would know. If you were an Israelite and didn't know who they were, then you, it'd be like being a Tennessee fan and not knowing who Peyton Manning was. It's just an impossibility. It's not something you can do. So they knew who Moses and Elijah were. So they come in. And I think also it tells us more about this story. As we saw at the end, it says Elijah is coming. I think Elijah is partly there to remind us and let us know that this is the Savior. This is him. That's his part in the story, is to tell people about the coming Messiah. But then Moses is there for another reason. I think both of them, though, Elijah and Moses, and I think because they're on a mountaintop, point us back to their mountaintop experiences they had. Right, Elijah with the prophets of Baal, and then Moses when he went to receive the law. And if you remember what happens when Moses goes into receive the law, he goes up, he gets the law, and he sees the Lord. And when he sees the Lord, his face begins to glow. Right, because it is reflecting the glory of the Lord. So much so that he has to wear a veil over his face whenever he sees people because they can't look at him. So he veils his face because Moses is reflecting the glory of the Lord. That's kind of what's happening with Jesus, but there's one key difference. Jesus is reflecting no one's glory. Jesus radiates his own. He radiates his own glory. He's letting us know in this moment that he is God himself. Jesus is a reflection of no one but himself. And they're getting to experience this together. Imagine the magnitude of this moment. And then we get Peter's response. And oh, how I love Peter. One, because we get to look at him and go, here's that guy making dumb comments again not understanding what's happening yet again. And then we get to go, that's probably me. If I was there, I'd be making dumb comments. And Peter, again, he responds and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here, which it is. I'd love to have been there too. He says, if you want, I will set up three shelters here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. First off, Peter's a fool. 
Elijah and Moses definitely did not come to have a shelter built for them. They come to build, to serve. This idea that the three of them are on level playing field is completely wrong. One man would get a shelter in this moment, and that's Christ himself. He's the one. Moses and Elijah serve the Savior. They don't rest. They don't stop what they're doing. They serve. Peter, it isn't, it isn't about Moses and Elijah. It's about Jesus. He's the answer here. He's the one we should build a shelter for. If you should build a shelter. Just imagine Peter up there. You're on top of this mountain, right? If you've been on top of a mountain, you know, it's a lot of sticks and rocks, maybe some grass. And Peter's like, stop right there. I'm going to build a shelter. Out of what, Peter? Out of sticks and rocks and grass? As if that's worthy of the Savior? But that's all Peter knows to do is to work and work and work. Lord, let me serve you. Let me serve you. Let me serve you. I got to build you a shelter. And these are the offerings we take to the Lord. And we say, Lord, look what I've done for you. And the Lord's like, doesn't cut it, man. Not good enough. But not only that, Jesus, since the beginning of time, whatever that was has existed. He's always been. There was never a moment that existed without Jesus. At any moment, Jesus could be standing on top of this mountain. He could call every stone, every rock, every diamond, every ruby, every gemstone, every ounce of gold, every ounce of silver in the entire world. He could call it to himself. And right there in that moment, he could build his own temple for himself. Right there. Oh, it would be magnificent. But guess what? it still would not be a worthy temple of our Savior. It wouldn't even be close. All those things are a reflection of the Savior. They are not the Savior. And let's just talk about the idea that, let's set, okay? Let's just set aside Jesus' Godhood for a second, okay? Usually this is a bad idea, but we're gonna set that aside. And let's just say you got two humans, you got one Peter, who's a fisherman, and one Jesus, who's a carpenter. So just from a strictly human standpoint, who's more equipped to build a shelter? Jesus. In every way, shape, form, and fashion, Jesus will build his own temple, his own shelter. But I think it also tells us something about Peter's heart. In this moment, this incredible, incredible moment, I think Peter begins to think, you know what? I knew what he told us a week ago wasn't true. I knew he, he told us he was gonna die, but I knew he wasn't. He was tricking us. This is it right now. He will establish his kingdom right here and he will rule the world from this spot in my grass shelter that I built for him. He thought this was it. He thought this was the moment. Wasn't the moment? That wasn't the proper response to say, I just need to sit here with Jesus. It's a good thing to gather together. But what should we do when we have a run-in with the glory of God? How should we respond to that? 
Well, let's go back to Moses. So in Exodus 34, when this moment happens, where he sees the Lord, in verse eight, it says, Moses, Moses immediately knelt low on the ground in worship. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your possession. Moses' response to having an encounter with God is not to say, God, let's stay here. It's to say, God, let's go and let's tell other people about you. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has an experience with the God and God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, me, I will go. I'll be the one. That is the proper and good response to what it means to encounter the glory of the Lord. It's to go and tell others about it. Peter says, I just wanna stay right here. I just wanna sit in this moment with you forever. And then in verse five, while he was still speaking. So my mom always told me not to interrupt, but guess what? If you're God, you get to interrupt anybody that you want to, especially when they're saying dumb things. So God says, or God, what happens is suddenly a bright cloud appears above them. Remember this moment when Peter said, I'm gonna build you a shelter and God's like, no, 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 I've got this. He puts the shelter over their head in this cloud. And now imagine it says it was, it was a bright cloud. So you're standing under this cloud. Jesus is glowing, the cloud's glowing. You look outside the cloud and it's like shadow has fallen on the land. The sun's still shining over there, but shadow has fallen. Why? Because what's happening underneath this cloud is so bright. Everything else looks dark. That's what's happening. So they're looking out. They're seeing this entire scene take place. And God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This should remind you of Jesus's baptism where he says the same thing. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Except here he adds, listen to him. Why is he saying that? Why is he saying, listen to him? Well, think, first, I think it's a response to Peter. But Peter, he actually, when he said he was gonna do this, he meant it. When he said, I'm gonna die, he meant I'm going to die. Listen to him, stop being a fool. Listen to the Lord. And then in John, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus himself is the word of God. Listen to it. Do what it says. That's what God is letting us know. Listen to the word. This is where you find it. And so often we're in these moments and we're like, God, tell me what to do. Jesus, tell me what to do. Just, just talk to me. Just talk to me. And God's like, I did right here. Everything for life and godliness is found right here in my word. Listen to him. Listen to it. Listen to the word. And then they do, which is the right and good and proper response to the voice of the Lord. This is when the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. This is the response. If you have a run-in with the actual voice of God, fall on, the, fall on your face and be terrified. That's it. That's the only right, good, and proper response. But then something else happens. Jesus reaches down. He sees them on the ground, scared. And he reaches down and he touches them. And he says, don't be afraid. Get up. Now, who has the right to say, don't be afraid of God? 
Who? Only God. That's it. Only one person gets to say, don't be afraid of God, and that is God himself. Jesus is God, and that's what he's telling them. Don't be afraid. But it also tells us something more about Jesus. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. You see, Jesus reaches down and he stands in the gap that we could never stand in. He's the answer to the question, how do we talk to God? It is Christ alone. You see, it talks about in Matthew, this idea we'll get there eventually where the veil is torn after Christ dies. Why? Because we now have direct access to the Father through the Son. We get to talk to God because of Jesus. No longer do we have to fall down on our faces terrified of God. But Jesus has become the great mediator. We don't need a priest to talk to him. We don't need anything. We just get to talk to him because Jesus died for that to happen. He is the great mediator. Now, as it says, once he touches them, it says they, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So why no one except Jesus? The cloud's gone. He's no longer glowing. Moses and Elijah have left. Why? I think it tells us something about what's about to happen. That alone, Jesus would walk to the cross. That he himself would make the sacrifice for our sin. He would do it. And no one could but him. Just his normal, regular self would walk to the cross and die. He tells them as they're walking down, it says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So why does he say this? Like, why does he say, hey, don't tell anyone? Because this is an incredible moment. And if I had this moment, just absolutely insane moment, I would run down the mountain as fast as I could and tell everyone, you won't believe what just happened. Jesus was glowing. Moses was there. Elijah was there and then God spoke. I think I gotta tell people about this. This is incredible. So why not? Why does he say, don't tell anyone? I think there's a couple reasons, some kind of basic. I think it's that idea of like, he doesn't want them to just be these kind of one-upping people that's kind of look at me and what happened to me as if they have some, ex some special like relationship to God some experience that no one else had, as if God loved them more. The experiences you have with God have nothing to do with how much God loves you. Nothing. And he doesn't want them going and they're at the, you know, the 10-year reunion of the disciples and they're all sitting around and they're like, man, remember that time he walked on water? That blind guy? And they, oh, remember Lazarus? He called him out from the dead? How great was that? And Peter, James, John like, stop, guys. You should have been there when he glowed. Whew, that was a good moment. He didn't love them any more than he loved the others. And he didn't want their relationship with him to be based off this experience. There's this, um, when I was, so my wife and I were missionaries overseas for a while and I was 
out one day with another missionary who'd been there 15 to 20 years, a long time. And he was, we went to disciple these um, kind of people. And so we're in this experience and we're having it. And there's this like kind of thing that happens there that day. It was kind of weird and kind of semi-supernatural maybe. I don't know exactly what happened, but we're talking about that on the way back in the car. And he's like, Jay, one of the things that we're experiencing is that there's these group of believers, these first generation Christians in India. And their belief is often based off something that happened. Maybe they were sick and they're well. Maybe they had a demon and they no longer have it. Maybe they were blind and can see. And this is not a comment about whether those things are true or not true. They believed they were true. And so their faith in Jesus is based off this experience. That's where they go. And they say, how do you know God exists? And they're like, I was blind, but now I see. That's what they say. And so then over here is the second generation, their children. And the gospel is not getting from this parent to this child. And why is that? Because when this parent speaks and says, you should believe the gospel because he healed me, the kid goes, you've been well my whole life. I don't know what you're talking about. They're like, I used to have a demon. They're like, not me. You see, their relationship with God is based off some experience instead of the actual gospel. And so they're not transmitting the gospel from one generation to the next because they don't know how to explain it. They don't know how to talk about it. It's experience, experience, experience. You won't believe what happened. And I don't think Jesus wants Peter, James and John's relationship to be based off one experience. That's not what he's looking for. He wants their relationship to him for, with him to be based off what he did on the cross how he lived out his everyday life. That's the thing he wants them to point to. And Peter confirms this. So in 2 Peter 2, it talks about, Peter kind of goes on this kind of explanation of what happened at the transfiguration. And then in verse 19, though, so after he says this, he said, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. He's saying, I believe because the word was confirmed. He was the one that crushed the servant. He was him. That's what I believe in. That's the truth that I've realized. Not this experience that I had. Not, not him walking on water. Not him raising people from the dead. None of those things. Believe it because of who he is. He is who he said he was going to be. He is the savior of the world. And what does this mean for us as we conclude? I think there's three incredible things we learn about Jesus in this passage. First is this. Christ is God because he is a reflection of no one's glory. He radiates his own. That's it. He is a reflection of no one's glory. He radiates his own. Second, Christ is the mediator between us and God. He alone is the mediator. Because of his death on the cross, we have access to the Father. And then lastly, and this goes back just a little bit. So in this moment where we have Peter, right? And Peter's kind of saying, I wanna do this thing for you. And we kind of look at that moment and go, that seems like a good and right thing to do, right? That seems like this good moment where he's doing a good thing. Look at him trying to serve the Lord. But it's not good enough, right? This thing that Peter wants to do isn't good enough. It's not deserving of the Lord's praise. 
There's nothing we can actually do that's deserving. But God responds after this when Peter is still standing there. He responds to Jesus and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see, it's Christ alone that he's pleased with. It's his sacrifice alone that's worthy. And so we go, well, what's the answer then? How am I pleasing to God? What do I need to do? Well, obviously you need to be Jesus. He alone is pleasing to God. Well, Jake, that's impossible, right? How would I ever do that? The other day in this soccer game when Raleigh looked up, part of her looking up and looking back is she knows we've worked on this again and again. And she looks up and she's like, dad, look, look what I did. Am I not pleasing to you? How good my daughter is at soccer has nothing to do with how pleasing she is to me. I love her because she's my daughter. That's it. Nothing else. And nothing she does will change that. So how do we become pleasing to the Father? In 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To be pleasing to the Father is to put your faith in the one who is righteous and because of him be made righteous. And then when you stand before the Father, you are made righteous and you are pleasing to him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word. Lord, what a glorious truth um, to think about your son and his, who he is, Lord, ultimately that he is God. And uh, I thank you that through his sacrifice, Lord, we have access to you. Um, through his sacrifice, we can be pleasing to you. Lord, I just pray, Lord, as we 